Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, before I get to the talk, I'd like to show you a picture and say thanks uh, to all of you at New Spring. A few weeks ago, I stood up here on stage, and, and we were getting ready for Judgment House, and I'd shared with you that we gave a Bible to everyone who trusted Christ, but I said I wanted to give a really special Bible to kids and to students, and that those were more costly, and they were age-sensitive for these kids, and I, and I asked you to give, and, and you did. You responded. This is an actual shot from Judgment House. We've gotten so many stories about how impactful these Bibles have been. We've heard stories of moms having to leave the lights on in the minivan for teenagers to read the Bible all the way home and then reading them all through the night, getting up the next morning and reading them. And, uh, you know, I know you guys are, a lot of you who have been in church, you're accustomed to, to ministers making appeals. I want to do the opposite of that. I want to say thank you because you gave way beyond what we expected. And we looked at how many teens and students accepted Christ last year, and we had an idea of how much we were going to need, and you gave far beyond that. Well, what's exciting about that is we've seen over twice the number of students already accept Christ, and we needed those Bibles, so thank you. Many of you, many of you added the cost of one Bible, $7 to your gift. That was so much. Many of you went way beyond that and just broke the, <laughs> you broke the box. If you know the story of, of Mary in John 12, you broke the box. And I just want to tell you something, guys. When you, when you give at New Spring, uh, we are so conservative. And we try to make the dollars go as far as we possibly can for the kingdom of God. But there's, I cannot tell you what you guys make possible by your generosity. So thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart, and someday the Lord will thank you appropriately for it. But I wish you could see these kids and teens when they get the gifts that you've put in their hands, okay? Then also, too, and I'm, normally I jump right into the message, but there are a couple of items that are just so huge, I need to talk to you about it. This, of course, is First Wednesday. This week, and on Wednesday evening, all of us get together for a communion and a worship service, but there's also a high school judgment house party, and it's from 6.30 to 8 p.m., so high schoolers, parents of high schoolers, grandparents. Mike tells me there's going to be tons of free food and hundreds of dollars in giveaways. I may go myself. Uh, but God's been doing some extraordinary things in the lives of our high schoolers the last couple of weeks. And so Mike and, and uh, the whole team want you to come out and celebrate with them. In this, in, in, you say, well, Mark, I didn't even get to go to Judgment House, but I'm a high school-age student, and, or I have a kid who's a high schooler. Oh, they want you to come. So that's this Wednesday, 6.30 to 8 p.m., and uh, there's inf if you need information about that, you can like email the high school department through the website, and they'll give you all the information you need. Well, we're in a series right now called Strange Days Indeed, and I'm going to just be real straight with you and follow flight plan from the beginning. This is not my favorite talk. All the other talks of the series are really exciting and, and upbeat. But today's talk is a, is a challenging talk. But you know, guys, let me just be real straight with you. My responsibility is not to be popular. My job is to be honest. My job is to be right. Because someday you're going to stand not before this sappy culture, not, not before this flabby, immoral culture. You're going to stand before a righteous God. 
And I just want to make sure, I mean, I, I usually worship from this gallery over here, and out of the corner of my eye, I look at all the people who have gathered, and I'm cognizant of the fact that someday you're going to stand before God, and if I don't put the right tools in your hands to live to the extent that I'm accountable for it, and things go wrong for you when you stand before God, I, I know you could turn it, look at, look at me and say, why didn't you tell me the truth? And I feel that. And so today, I'm going to go to a place that's a little bit more challenging than usual. If you have gotten your belief system from this pop culture, you're probably going to have issues with me today. In other words, if you decide what is right and wrong because this culture has told you what is right and wrong, you're always going to put God on trial and he's going to come up short. But therein lies your issue. You must stand before God. And so I want to just lay this out for you today because I want to take you to the words of Jesus. And of course, this whole series of strange days indeed, it infers that we may be living in very unusual times. And I've asked the question last week is, are we like riders in a bus with no driver and the world is just going to go on like this forever? Or is, is there a plan? And last week we looked at the plan of God and we said, yeah, we are. We're not like riders with no driver. There is a plan. And yes, indeed, we probably are living in strange days. We're living in unusual times that could lead up to a culmination. Well, when Jesus was on the earth, the, the people had the idea that they were about to experience that culmination. And I'll tell you why, and this is maybe more than you want to know, but let me just give you this, and, and um, <clears throat> I'll try to say it real quickly. The, the Jews at the point where Jesus was on the earth for 500 years have been under the dominance of the Roman government. And the Jews had a lot of promises from God in the Old Testament, and we still have them ourselves. God had made a specific promise to their king, David. David was the first king who was God's choice in Israel. And there was something in the Bible called the Davidic Covenant. Basically, that means God's deal with David. God had a personal deal going with David. David was God's choice. David was just an extraordinary man. He was the guy who beat Goliath. He wrote most of the Psalms. He, was, he led Israel during its golden age. And God made David a promise one time. And God said, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne forever. That's a long time. We elect presidents for four years, eight years if we give them a second term. But God said to David, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne forever. And so the Jews looked at that promise and they said, yes, there is going to be, they believed God, some of them did at least, they believed that there would be a descendant of King David on the throne forever, but the problem was there hadn't been a king for 500 years. Hold on, somebody says, wait a minute, Mark. Now, I know the Christmas story, and isn't there a King Herod? Yeah, but he was a puppet king installed by the Romans. He was not a, of the tribe of Judah, of which all kings had to be. He certainly was not a descendant of King David, and beyond that, he wasn't even a Jew. He was not a man. He was just popular with the Romans. So Israel had not had a king for 500 years. And some of the more devout Jews went to Jesus one time, and they asked him, tell us, when is the end going to come? In other words, when is the kingdom going to be established? And, and when is all this stuff going to happen? And a lot of them, there were people that were warming up to the idea that maybe Jesus was that king, and if he was the king, since he was on the earth, maybe it was time. And in Luke 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? I don't think they really thought he was the king. I think they were just jerking his chain. But they said, when is it going to happen? And I don't think Jesus answered them directly because it seems like they walked away, but Jesus' disciples, guys and gals like you and me, they hung around and they really did want to know the answer to this question. So I think what happened here was that they were expecting Jesus to talk about prophecy. And in two of the biggest clues that Jesus ever gave 
about what things are going to be like before his return and his eventual kingdom, Jesus didn't give them prophecy. He gave them history. He pointed them backward in time. Read with me in Luke 17. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Or some of you have a translation that says, in the days of Noah. That's why I picked the title, Strange Days Indeed. It's kind of a takeoff on the term days. Because Jesus said, right before I come back, it'll be as it was in the days of Noah. And now let's jump to verse 28. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning lot left Sodom, then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, I just find this extraordinarily interesting, and as a, as a Bible student and a Christ follower, and as one who really does think, and I don't know when Jesus is coming back, and I'm not a date setter, and the people who are just freak me out. But I look at the world today and I think we really are living in strange days. As one who does all that, I have to tell you that the biggest clues that I have outside of the nation of Israel being restored, the biggest clues I have is I look to the fact of Jesus' prophecy of days of Noah and days of Lot. Now, here's what's interesting about that and immediately it begs a question. Because the days of Jesus' return are singular. But he gives us a dual prophecy, the days of Noah and days of Lot. So in other words, there has to be some similarity between the days of Noah and days of Lot that lead us to this idea of what things are going to be like before he returns. So then, let's go back quickly to the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and let's figure out what is similar about those two time periods. Both of them are in the book of Genesis. What is similar about the times of Noah and the times of Lot? Because... They are going to lead us to a singular time period, the days before Jesus' return. Well, you probably can pick up more than I can, but I can pick up three things real fast. Number one is it was business as usual. When you read Jesus' account of the days of Noah and days of Lot, you know, some people have the idea that right before the time Jesus comes back, it's going to be really freaky, and we're all going to say, wow, these are weird times. But in Jesus' characterization of the times of Noah and times of Lot, he said, well, people were just buying and selling, buying real estate. They were doing their job. They're getting up in the morning, going to work. They were having families and so on, right up to the day when it happened. So in other words, it was business as usual. The second thing that I noticed about it, and this is where it gets a little bit dark, was I noticed that both of these are cultures that God had given up on. God is a very merciful God. I don't think we can understand just how long-suffering and merciful God is. We're going to see this about Lot's time in just a little while. But these are cultures that eventually God said, I give up on. In our world today, I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to take a crack at it. When we look at God being pushed out of our world, whether it's being, a, whether it's being pushed out of a public graduation ceremony or not using the word Christmas anymore and using holidays and all the secularization of our culture, when we look at that, whether you're a believer in God as I am, or if you're a totally secular person, we could arrive at the same conclusion that God is the victim there. God is not the victim there. We are. See, the, the test is not whether God can rise to the level of our acceptance. He's already going to heaven. That's not the question. The test is on us. The question is not, does a culture give up on God? The question is, when does God give up on a culture? And in both of these cases, in Noah's times and Lot's times, God finally said, I've done everything I know to do. I give up. And when God gives up, it is a catastrophic thing. 
And when we, we talked about the tribulation period last, year, last week that we read about in the book of the Revelation, that seven-year period of time, that is what happens to the world. God is saying, you don't want me, I'll absent myself from the room. Yesterday, Morales was reading a text to me from, I, from Lamentations in which Jeremiah sobs out, God, you've taken your protection off of us. That's what happens with the world in, in the tribulation. That's why those seven years that you read about in Revelation are so bad. God finally says, I give up. I'll leave the room. But the third thing that makes these two situations a parallel is very important to me, and that is that there is a rescue for his people. Now, the rescue in the last days, as we talked about, will be when Jesus comes back. And we read about it. And by the way, if you didn't get last week's talk, you can get this online. Um, but there is going to be a time, the Bible says, when Christ will come back and those of us who are alive will go to be with him. We talked about that, the dead in Christ will rise first. We said last week, some of you know the term rapture. Really what it is is an evacuation. God is evacuating his people before the, the catastrophe. Well, notice that you have that in both situations with both Lot and Noah. In Lot's cases, we'll see in just a moment, the angels come and get them out of Sodom before the fire and the sulfur fall. In Noah's case, which is a really cool story we'll talk about last week, Noah, God used Noah to prepare an evacuation. So you have those three things that I find similar about the times of Noah and the times of Lot that are also similar to the times before Jesus comes back. Business as usual, God gives up on a culture, by the way, could I just take a time out for a moment? Because some of you, I lost you right there. And you're saying, but God is a God of love. I don't think God ever gives up on a culture. You've got homework today, okay? I don't usually give you homework. Go home and read, read Romans chapter 1, all right? Because it will give you the stages in which God reacts to a culture. Don't do it right now. If you're ADHD like me, you want to just open it up and find out what it says right now. In fact, I do too. I want to stop right now and go look at it. But when you go home, Romans, look it up in the index if you don't know where it is in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, because it goes from stem to stern, why God starts to give up on a culture, and eventually why God says lights are out. Now, let's go specifically to what we're going to look at today, the days of Noah, but before, excuse me, days of Lot. But before we get there, I want to ask two galactically important questions. Number one, what should Jesus comment about the days of Lot mean to us? I ask that for the obvious reason. But I want to go to a second question that's really important. I'm not going to answer it for you. I want you to answer it for yourself. And here's the question. Does it matter if I'm just barely a Christ follower? Let me tell you why I asked that question. Every weekend, just about four times a week, for all four, four of our services, I'll stand on this very stage and I'll ask you a question. Have you ever invited Jesus Christ into your heart and life? And what is the one word I will tell you every weekend about that? I will say it's a gift. It is a gift. In other words, if you invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life, he paid for your eternal life on the cross. So to go to heaven, I'll tell you that you can't be good enough. It's not joining a church. It's not giving money. It is a gift. Is that true? Yes. What is the one verb the Bible uses over and over about eternal life? It says believe. Believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I ask you to receive a gift. Now, I get responses to that every once in a while, and they won't come to me personally, but I'll hear it from the grapevine. Somebody will come from a very traditional Christian background, and they will come from a real churchy thing, and here's the reason why they make this comment. They think they are pretty good. They think they live a pretty good life. And so they will say, well, it can't be that simple. It's not just praying a prayer. Well, no, it's not just praying a prayer. It's a man dying on a cross and rising from a grave and us putting confidence in him. 
But there will be people who will say, well, oh, it can't be that simple. Yes, you believe in Jesus, but you got to do this, and you got to be baptized, and you got to do good stuff, and you got to be a pretty good person. And basically what they're saying is, well, you really have to do something in order to accept Christ. Well, the problem with that is if you try to do something to go to heaven, you'll screw the whole thing up because a gift is a gift. But then there are others of us at New Spring who come to that statement that I make about accepting Christ being a gift, and you don't come to it from a contrarian standpoint. From, you, you come to it from a friendly perspective. And you basically say, well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> wow, that's good to hear. That I can have a relationship with God and it's totally free and it won't cost me anything and I can go to heaven. So that is great. I'm so glad to hear that. That means I can accept Jesus Christ and have hell insurance and then I can pretty well get on with my life. Well, let's ask the question. And by the way, I, I, I don't want to say this very, very much, but we really do need to make sure we keep distractions down today because this is going to be about 30 minutes the most important time you ever spend in church. May not be fun, but it's very important. I think the question could be asked, is it possible for a person to accept Christ and never grow in their Christian faith? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. Now, I think the Holy Spirit's going to give you a lot of grief about it, but what difference does it make? I want, I want to just tell you the story, and then we'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Well, the story of Lot starts with his uncle, whose name was Abraham. Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish nation. And when, when God called Abraham out of Ur, which was, by the way, a very wicked place, God wanted to start with Abraham because Abraham had faith. I think Abraham did something that many of you do who have faith. He talked to his family, but his family wouldn't listen to him for the most part. But he had a nephew who did listen. And the Bible doesn't say that God used Abraham because Abraham was very good. The Bible says Abraham believed God, and God accepted that as righteousness. And so as Abraham talked about God, his nephew Lot listened to him. And when God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave your comfortable surroundings of Ur because it's just not a great environment for you to be in. I want you to leave Ur and just keep going till I tell you to stop. Abraham left, but Lot, his nephew, said, Uncle Abraham, I want to go with you. But as God blessed them, and he did bless them, they both became very wealthy. Something happened in Lot that didn't happen in Abraham. Lot, even though he was a God follower, began to love money and possessions maybe more than he loved God. And we see all this come together in a scenario in which not Lot and Abraham in a conflict, but their, their staffs, their herdmen get into a conflict. They both have huge flocks of cattle but there's not enough grazing land and so Abram goes to Lot and he says to him you know there's no reason for us to have conflict it's an embarrassment before all the people we want to have a we want to have a good reputation as God followers he said to Lot why don't you pick the direction you want to go and I'll pick the other direction the land is big let's not try to jam everything so close together now I want to tell you what I think happened at that very moment. I think Lot had already been figuring out where he wanted to go. But that was, you know, you know, ever, have you ever made a decision that was beyond your maturity? Lord knows I have. And this would have been a great opportunity for Lot to go to Abraham and say, Uncle Abraham, you're a God follower, you're a wise man. Why don't you advise me 
on the choice that I should make, but it seems that Lot didn't do that at all. The Bible says Lot chose for himself, and I, and I think that's a very important phrase. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with Uncle Abram. Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plains. In other words, Lot, Lot said, well, I, want, I know where I want to go. And the Bible says, and I don't have this before you, but the Bible says that the area was so lush, it was almost like the Garden of Eden. So when Lot saw this area, he saw dollar signs. But, but, this is God talking here. This is God's commentary on Lot's decision. The people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned. I've given you the meaning of the Hebrew word. They sinned vehemently. When you think of the word vehement, I always think about a strong, oppressive wind. I don't know why I think about that living in Kansas the last 26 years. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly what it means. They sinned vehemently against the Lord. In other words, it's like a hot, oppressive wind that just won't die down. That's how they sinned. So you think about Lot's decision, you know, you think about, hey, Lot, sure, it's a very attractive place, you can make lots of money there, but you got to think about this culture. What kind of effect is it going to have on you? You're already sort of slip-sliding away. What kind of effect is it going to have on your family? I think Lot would have answered you just like you and I tend to answer sometimes when we're trying to do the wrong thing, but, and we know it, but we, we try to say, well, I've got reasons for this. I want you to look at three verses. Lot moved his tents to a place, say the word for me, near Sodom. Lot said, well, you know what, I, I, I can be two different people. I can go to Sodom and do business. I can go back outside the city, and I can be a family man. I can be a God follower here, but the rest of the week, I'm going to go over here and do business with the people who live in Sodom. Yeah, I know they sin against God. They're extremely wicked and everything. And then here's the thing, and I want to take a time out because some of us are in cultures and we don't have any choice. And you say, well, Mark, are you saying to me that I'm wrong to be in a culture where people don't respect God? I'm not saying that at all because sometimes life forces you to be there. But I want to make the point that Lot chose to be there. That's the big distinction. Lot chose to be there. From time to time, life is just going to put us in an un, 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 a difficult situation. And we're not going to like what we're surrounded with. But it's not our choice. I believe there's a huge difference between that and choosing for the almighty dollar to be in a place that wears ourselves down and wears our family down. So Lot, Lot, Lot moved his tents near Sodom. Next time, this is in Genesis 14, uh, Sodom was attacked and Lot was carried away captive. But this little verb, this little blurb in here, Abram's nephew who lived, what's the word? Inside. In other words, there was a point where, I don't know if it was Lot was talking to his wife and said, you know, babe, we're living in these tents, and man, there's Sodom over there, and they got all this entertainment, and they got all this stuff over there. They got things for the kids that we don't have out here living in the country. Why don't we just, why don't we build a house? You know, maybe they start, maybe they went spring parade of homes or something, looked over inside, and they said, wow, look over, look at that house. We can afford it now, and we can still be who we are, and we can still raise our daughters the way we want to raise our daughters, but... And next thing you know, they built a house in Sodom. The next time we see the scenarios in chapter 19. And this is when the angels come to deliver them. This is when the angels come with the evacuation. And, and notice this, Lot was setting in the gate of Sodom. And that may not mean a whole lot to you and me, but in the gate is an expression that means Lot was on city council. Do you see the slippage? 
I mean, Lot Lot chose to be in a place that was going to erode his family. He chose a culture that was going to be difficult for him to live out his faith. And he said, well, I'm going to be near it. Next thing you know, he's in it. And the next thing you know, he's part of it. There's an old... There's an old story. I don't know if there's any truth to it or not. Probably not. Because after all, who would want to boil a frog? There's the old story about, you know, somebody putting a frog in a cauldron of boiling water and the frog jumped out. So they just lowered the temperature, put the frog in there when it was warm and gradually turned up the water. And the frog basically let himself become acclimatized to it and before he realized that he was boiling. Now whether that's true or not, I doubt that it is. But I do think that some of us are in that kind of scenario. There are things that we laugh at today. There are things that we accept today that we never thought we would accept. We hold positions today that we never thought we would ever hold. But the reason why we do is we've just allowed entertainment. We've allowed voices in our lives. We've allowed stuff to erode our beliefs. Now we don't know what we believe anymore. We were near it, in it, and now part of it. Well, did it matter to Lot? I mean, I think you see the conflicted nature that Lot had. This is actually in the book of 2 Peter. You know, Peter writing centuries after Lot. And, and I, I, I like what Peter said. He said he was a good man. In other words, Lot was a believer. He was a good man. He was driven nearly out of his mind by the sexual filth and perversity. Surrounded by moral rot day after day, that righteous man was in constant torment. Do you see how conflicted he was? I mean, here he is on one hand, he's doing business and he's doing, he's, you know, doing what you have to do to get ahead inside him. But by the same time, all the stuff that he sees just wears him down. How many of us watch movies and it's like every time, you know, we just groan. I mean, just the torrent of gratuitous blasphemy. I mean, how many of us, you know, in our entertainment, there's just junk that just like, oh, it makes you sick, but it's just how things are today. Well, as I said a few moments ago, cultures can move past the point of no return, and God is the one who makes the call on that. And there was a point where God decided that's it for Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain, and God said, I'm not going to accept anymore. And God came to Abraham and told Abraham about it, because after all, Lot lived there. And Abraham, in one of, the, one of the rare moments of humor in today's talk, and there are very few, Abraham does something kind of interesting. God says to Abraham, I just want to let you know, you know God came along. I think it was a pre this is more than you probably want to know. I think this was a theophany, a pre, pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. I think he was there along with a couple of angels. And the Lord said to Abraham, I'm going I'm to go down and take care of Sodom. Their wickedness has come up before me. And Abraham started negotiating with God. And Abraham said, well, no, no, wait a minute, God. If you get down there and you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God said, well, well yeah, yeah. If I get down there and find 50 people that are trying to do right, they don't, it doesn't mean perfect people. It just means people like, like, hopefully, like you and me, who just want to do the right thing. God said, if I get down there and I find 50 people that are trying to do the right thing, I won't I will touch the city. You, and, and Abraham said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, God. Wait, 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 let's say there's not 50. Let's say there's 45. <laughs> and God said, okay, if there are 45. Abraham said, no, God, please don't, don't get upset with me now. If you get down there and you find 40, 
God said, 40 is fine. But Abraham knows Sodom real well. Uh, God, if they're 30, would that be all right? No problem. God, I'm going to ask you one more time, and then I'm going to stop. If you get down there, and there are 10, just 10, and God said, if I go to Sodom, and there are 10 people trying to do right, and I think Abraham excelled because he thought, well, you know what, my nephew is there. My nephew's there. He will have at least had an impact on a few people. At least his family. I mean, the text is a little bit strange here. We don't know if Lot had four daughters, two of them were married, and two of them were single, or we don't know if he just had two daughters and they were both engaged, which in the day was considered almost the same as marriage. We don't really know. It's kind, of, it's kind of challenging, but I think that Abraham started doing the math and thinking about Lot and his family and at least maybe a few neighbors and friends that he got to go to Judgment House. I mean, surely 10. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Can we take a time out for a moment? And, and i got to rush through this because i got to get finished in seven minutes, okay? <gasps> what was the problem in Sodom? Because a lot of us have preconceived ideas about what was wrong in Sodom. So let's just, because it's interesting to me. Did you know the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah all the way through the Bible, through the Old Testament, the New Testament? In the book of Ezekiel, the Bible just spells it out. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that's the other cities of the plain, were arrogant. That means they just, like, they had, a, had not, they, they were filled with pride. They, they loved themselves. They were overfed. In other words, they never had to worry about where their next meal was coming from. And then the Bible says, um, they were unconcerned. Or some texts will say they were idle. In other words, they had so much idle time. They had all kinds of time for entertainment and technology and all kinds of things. I mean, and then they didn't help the poor and the needy. There could be people that were starving. They didn't care anything about that. They were haughty. That means they flipped God off with both middle fingers. And they detest and did detestable things. It means, and in fact, in the book of Jude, this particular expression is picked up in Greek and it says they did unnatural, they had unnatural sexual practices. That's in the book of Ezekiel. Let's go to Isaiah. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. I mean, Sodom wasn't just sinful before God. They basically flaunted it. What are you going to do about it, God? And then I want, us, I want us to go to the New Testament now because God is going to give us his commentary on Sodom to the book of Jude. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. These cities were destroyed by fire, and look at this, and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So I, I'm just asking the question, and, and you're going to answer it, what did Jesus mean by the days of Lot? What exactly was going on in Sodom? They were full of themselves, they didn't need God. They knew where their, I mean, they didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. They were rich. They had idle time. They were proud of themselves. They were who they were. And if God didn't like it, tough. Well, Jesus said it was right up till the day. So let's see what happened the night before Sodom was destroyed. Sodom is, it, there weren't 10 righteous people. Lot hadn't had any effect. If you, if you say, well, well, Mark, what would happen in a time like this if there was a believer who was trying to do it right, who really made a difference, who was a game changer? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. Okay? 
But for the time being, we have a guy who went down there and his whole life was about the almighty dollar and he didn't have any impact on anybody. And we're going to see what happened with him. This is the night before Sodom was destroyed and the angels had come from God to get Lot and his family out before the fire and sulfur fell. Okay, at first, the angels said to Lot, we'll just stay out here in the street because I don't think they wanted to go into the house of a believer who wasn't really serious. But Lot knew that wasn't a good idea. So he said to the two angels who appeared to be men, come on into the house. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, we're the men who came to spend the night with you. Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped out to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged. Now, I'm going to ask you to look at two words, okay? Here's one of the first ones. Don't do such a, what's this word? Wicked. Don't do such a wicked thing. Now, Lot is calling these guys to look at something for a moment. He's calling them to look at their conduct before God because wicked is something that has to do with, you know, us doing something that God looks at and and shakes his head. So he begged them, please don't do such a wicked thing. Move on. Look. Lot is saying he's going to triangulate here. I got two virgin daughters. I have no idea exactly why he said this. I have a theory, but I'll give that to you some other time. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish. But please, leave these men alone, for they're my guests and under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow, they're talking about Lot, this fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he is acting like, here's the second word I want you to see. Go back to that. He is acting like our, our judge. Lot has said, don't do such a wicked thing. And they're saying, well, we feel judged. Go on. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunge toward Lot to break down the door. Just to give you the rest of the story, obviously the angels are very powerful. (laughs) And they didn't need Lot to protect them. Lot needed the angels to protect him. And Lot's trying to protect the angels. And the angels just struck all the guys with blindness. They couldn't find a doorknob. I just want to talk about those two words for a moment. Lot said to the guys, don't do such a wicked thing. And they said, but we feel judged. Now, they didn't really feel judged. When the fire and sulfur came the next day, that's when they would feel judged. See, we have a culture today that just says, please don't tell me anything I don't want to hear because I regard that as judging or persecution. Folks, let me just say this to Mark and to you and to all of us here today. Anytime any of us takes a gracious warning from God is judging, we're in deep trouble. And in other words, if there's something in our life that's not right and we're confronted with it and we take that as judgment when someone is lovingly warning us, we're really foolish. I can remember when my father, I was a teenager, my father warned me about credit cards and I thought he was judging me. I wish I'd listened. Man, it didn't take me long in my 20s to find out what 18% interest would do. You see what I'm saying? But I think, you know, and I'm not trying to defend the people of Sodom here, but I think Lot have made a mistake that a lot of Christians have made for the last 50 years. I think what happened is Lot had not tried to change anybody's mind. Evidently, this is the first time Lot ever spoke up. He watched all kinds of things go down in Sodom, and evidently, he never said anything. 
See, one of the problems I think the Church of Jesus Christ has had for the last 50 years is like a lot of, and I'm not talking about New Spring, but a lot of traditional Christians have seen their churches as fortresses. And the only time they come out is to vote in the hopes that they can change laws to make people do right. But let me just tell you this, and I hope you're good citizens, and I hope you try to vote your, your beliefs. But let me just tell you this, we're not going to change America by changing laws. There's only one way to change America and the world, and that's by changing hearts, by winning hearts. And for the most part, all we've done is create the same reaction that the people of Sodom had. Who do you think you are to judge? I don't have time to develop this today, but let me just tell you, I think the biggest issue that we have in the United States, and by extension the rest of the world, good has been replaced by nice. We have lost the distinction between tolerance and permissiveness. We think we're being tolerant when the truth of the matter is we're being permissive. I mean, parents, let me ask you a question. Are you just tolerant about anything your kids want to do? No. You're, if, you, if you let them do anything they want without any kind of comment, you're not tolerant, you're just permissive. And we've gotten to a place today in our culture well, we don't know the difference between good and bad anymore. If somebody stands up and says, wait a minute, like, like Lot, wait a minute, this is not right, this is wicked before God. Well, the next thing you know, or you're not being tolerant, or, or you're not being gracious, you're not being nice, but you're saying, but I'm trying to give you what is good. Well, I don't care about what is good. That's bad now. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, there's a verse I think about when I look at America so many times. The Bible says, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. It's not easy living in these times. And it's not easy taking a stand for what God says. But you gotta ask yourself, you wanna be popular? You wanna be right? Do you just wanna swim along upstream and have everybody make you feel like you're a cosmopolitan citizen of the world? Or do you wanna be somebody that God can look down and say, I'm proud of him. That wasn't a popular position, but he took it. I'm proud of her. It wasn't easy among her friends to say, I don't agree. Well, Lot's got, a, he's got an issue on his hands now. He's had no impact at all. There aren't 10 righteous people there. If there had been, he could have saved Sodom. But now he just has to get his family out. Personally, I think he had two married daughters. I don't know. They could have been his daughter's fiancés. Translations vary on this. But Lot went to his, to his I think, his daughter's families, and he said, hey, we've got to get out of town. We've got to get out of here. I mean, this, God's going to destroy the city. I mean, you, you guys got to just leave everything. Leave your house. Leave your money. Leave your possessions. Leave your cars. Leave your furniture. You just got to leave everything because God is going to rain down destruction. But look at this. The Bible says the young men thought he was joking. Evidently, Lot had done a lot more joking than he had talking about God. 
Lot was a cutout. He was funny. He was fun to be around. He was the life of the party. So when he went to his family and said, we got to get out of here, they said, oh, man, Dad's getting off a good one here. What a great practical joke. And then the Bible tells us about Lot's wife, and I don't know why she did. God, the angels said, they grabbed, the Lot hesitated, you know, and the angels grabbed them by the arm and said, get out of here. It's just about to happen. And Lot's wife, you know, the angel said, please don't slow down for anything. We're just going to barely get out of here. But somehow Lot's wife hesitated and stopped. And you guys who run track, gals who run track, you know the one thing you can't do is you can't look behind. Because if you do, you'll slow down. Evidently, Lot's wife looked behind, slowed her down just enough that she got part of the judgment. Now, here's the point I want to make. Did Lot get out? Yes. Yes. He was a God follower. Did he get rescued even though he had made a, a series, a lifetime of bad choices? Yes, he got out. The angels delivered him. But from what I can tell, he was the only one. He had two single daughters. And, and even though he might have gotten them out of Sodom, they didn't, he didn't get Sodom out of them. And they got their dad drunk. And, and I don't want to go too deep in this. You can read this. But they committed a sin with their own father. I mean, it seems to me that the only person who got out was Lot. Well, let's finish where we started because we need to stop five minutes ago. Let's think about those two galactically important questions. When Jesus says days of Lot, what do they have to say about us today? That's so obvious I won't spend another second on it. Does it matter if you're just barely a Christ follower? Because I could be talking to you here today and at some point you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. But you're like lots you're living in Sodom. I mean, I don't mean Sodom specifically, but I mean, your, your, your life is in this culture. I mean, I saw a statistic this week I couldn't believe. It's 50% of Christian men are hooked on internet porn. And if you've prayed to receive Christ, will you get out? Yes, I believe so. If you've invited Christ in your heart and you're serious about it, and you've invited him to be your Savior, will you get out? Yes, I believe you will. But the question is, what about the people around you? What about your friends? What about your family? Say, so, well, I don't want to talk about stuff that might not be right in their lives. Do you realize that's the most gracious thing you can possibly do in a loving and kind way? Because at the end of the day, we're not going to stand before Stephen Colbert. We're going to stand before God. And he's the one with the final call. Thanks for listening to a really, really tough message. Father, thank you for what you've taught us today. May it be sobering, but not fearful. May we look at this story and say, well, we've still got time. And if we've allowed Sodom to creep into our lives, Lord, help us to turn from that and to say, I don't want to leave my surroundings without making a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me one more moment, please? I know we're in overtime. But if you're here today and you're saying, Mark, you said all day long that I could receive God's gift of eternal life. And I don't think I've ever done that. Well, the Bible gives you one word over and over, and that word is believe. God doesn't ask you to do. He asks you to believe. In fact, God's already done the work. His son Jesus died on a cross. And if you will put your confidence in him, he will forgive you and make you his child. I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to pray a prayer that just reaches out to God. These aren't magic words, but if you mean them in your heart, you can receive God's gift. Would you be willing to believe in Jesus? Would you be willing to put your confidence in him? Then pray with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, 
I, I don't want to be like those people who lived and had no thought about how you felt. I know there are things in my life that are wrong, and I'm not going to try to pretend that they're right. Today I turn from those things with your help, and I receive your gift of eternal life. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the grave, and I commit my eternal soul to him in Jesus' name.